Brought to you by Brass and Unity. We make wearable conversation starters. Our new buddy check packs are available now. Grab one and check on one of your closest buddies. They may need it now more than ever. Go to brassandunity.com, use the code UNITY and get 20% off. And let's all heal together. And brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat Flip Flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. To help support the podcast and in support of women in developing countries, head over to combatflipflops.com and become a part of their unarmed forces today. Be sure to use the code UNITY at checkout and get 25% off. And brought to you by GFDA. Good fucking design advice. The voice in your head and the foot up your ass. GFDA makes prints, drinkware, and apparel for people who want to do their fucking best. Go and use the code UNITY and get 10% off now on anything on their site, including our collaborative product, Fucking Help Somebody. And brought to you by Daisy May Hat Co., the custom hat company based in Nashville, Tennessee. They make custom one-of-a-kind hats from wide-brimmed fedoras to cowboy hats. All of their hats are 100% beaver felt, and it's the highest quality hat you can get. They also have the coolest shirts ever. You can use the code BRASS at checkout for 15% off your entire order. Go and check out daisymayhats.com. Embrace the fever. Live the dream. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you for inviting me, Kelsey. Yeah, I'm super excited. We were just chatting a little bit about how I found out about you through Jez, um, who's another former military Brit member of yours. And uh, I guess he's still British. I don't know. He's a great dude. And he uh, always seems to find incredible human beings and loves to share them with me. And, and you were one of those. And um, I really was inspired by your story when I started to learn a little bit about you and then saw the jujitsu and everything that you were doing in terms of the life that you've kind of given yourself after the military. And then finding out that you're a Royal Marine and, and, and what that takes to become that. But I guess really where I'd love to start is why the military? Do you come from a military background? So there's a funny story here. Okay. So when I, when I was growing up, all of my, my friends that lived in the area that I grew up in and I hung around with were like two or three years older than I was. So they had all finished school. When I was like 13, maybe 14, they had, they had finished, done their exams, and they were out in the big bad world. And a lot of them went into the military. So as I was getting towards the end of my schooling, I would see them come back from, you know, army training, Navy training, Royal Marines training, whatever it was. And they always seemed to have money and cars. I'm always out drinking on the weekends and partying and having fun. So when I was coming towards the end of school, I thought, that, that's kind of cool. I, you know, I can see myself doing that. I've got a lot of energy. I, I got into fitness at a young age, like 13, 14 and I grew up watching all the Arnie and Stallone films, and I thought, that's the job for me. <laughs> so I went down to the, the career center, and I spoke to the Army recruiting guy, got all the paperwork. I was only 15, took it back to my parents to get them to sign it. And they said, do you know you got an uncle who was in the Royal Marines? Now, he wasn't an uncle. He was one of those people that is in your family that you grow up calling uncle. He lived about 20 miles away. So we jumped in the car one Saturday morning, went up and saw him. And he sat down with me and told me all about his career in the Royal Marines. He had, he had started as a Marine, which is private, and over 22 years had gone up to the rank of captain. He deployed all over the world. He talked to me about the Royal Marines and why they were different from the Army and, and what you had to do and become to be able to be one. 
And so I went back to the career center the following Monday, spoke to the Royal Marines recruiter. He put in the old VHS cassette into the video TV combi thing. And I was, that's it. I, my jaw hit the floor when I saw guys jumping out of planes, working in the Arctic, the jungle, the desert, the woodland, using speedboats, doing all this stuff. And I'd never heard of them before, which is really bizarre because the city I live in, in the UK, Plymouth, is a huge Royal Marine city and they're everywhere. But from that moment, I kind of went, that's what I want to do. And that, that was it for me from that minute. You know, I, I thought I'll just finish up the end of school, you know, get the exams out of the way. I'd already started the process to join the military. It was just a case of waiting to be accepted and to start training. So it was pretty much from a young age, it was all over my radar from, from various different angles. And, you know, you say, did I have a military background within my family? I, I didn't think I did. And then a couple of years ago, probably about seven or eight years ago. So I, I joined the Marines in 2001 when I was 17, right? So about seven years ago, my nan was packing her house up. My granddad had, had sadly passed on and she was moving out to go and live with my sister. And she said, oh, come over. I've got something you might want to see. I want to give it to you. So I went around to her house and she had these boxes with all these tatty medals in that were all dirty and the ribbons were all shredded. And I'm like, where did you get these? She said, oh, my, my dad was a Royal Marine and your granddad's dad was in the Navy in the First and Second World War. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, you didn't want to tell me this when I was 17 in 2001. You're telling me now, I think I was about 32 when she told me. So then I discovered that I did have a history, a military history in my family. And I was like, okay, cool. So I took the medals, got them all reconditioned. Um, they're upstairs in a box now. But yeah, in answer to the question, I, I do now know that I have a quite a strong military history in my family. That's fantastic. I love that because I had a similar thing happen to me where okay. people would ask me that. And I'm like, no. And then we started writing the book. And then my dad was like, your your grandfather served in world war ii and i was like sorry what <laughs> he's like yeah, yeah. i'm the, the baby of seven none of us really talked about it i was like so what did he do he's like i don't know something in motorcycles he would go front up to the front with like letters and i'm like i'm sorry we, what yeah how do i not how do we not we don't discuss things like this it feels like it's mm -hmm. that's wild i love i love hearing that i love that you had a similar story yeah. Yeah, um cool. that is really cool and to have royal marines in your family already is is a, kind of a spectacular feat because i don't know if you, maybe you could for the listeners who don't quite understand the difference between a royal marine and a united states marine they're they're quite a bit we're a little bit different here just a tiny bit yeah they are that they're, they're worlds apart the closest are so we're the royal marines royal marine commandos are like naval infantry. So from what little I know about US forces, the only thing I can really think they were compared to is the, like the SEALs. Correct. You know, we work within the Navy. We're, we're, not, we're not classed as special forces in the UK, but we're like that, that one step under. There's the SBS, the Special Boat Service, and the Special Air Service above us, but they don't class us in the UK as special forces. But we're naval, we're amphibious infantry troops, um, part of the Navy, but we can operate anywhere in the world. So like I said earlier, we can operate in the desert, 
the jungle, the Arctic, the woodland. We go in by foot, by plane, by boat, any insertion method you can think of, and at the drop of a hat. And I don't know what the figures are now, but on average, the Royal Marines at full strength are only 7,000 men strong. So wow. it's a very, very small group of men. We had uh, our very first episode was a Royal Marine. Okay. Uh, yeah, he's a buddy of mine that lives over here now in, in, in the Canadian. He's, he's in Canada now or China, whichever <laughs> one you want to call us. We answer okay. to them all. Um, so he he was our very first episode, and we got I got I got to taste a little bit of Royal Marines and what that was like. And then I started hanging out with Dean Stott. <laughs> okay. And then I learned a little bit more about the difference between Royal Marines and, and SBS and SAS, which was a yeah. very interesting conversation. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Oh yeah, um, but it's really fascinating because you kind of had a come up that was. Uh, Interesting because you guys, it seems like over in the UK, you guys can sign up younger. Your schooling's a little bit different in the way that you work. It seems like there's a little more leeway to leave school and go do other things as opposed to it is over here. Um, how'd your parents feel about you going in? They, they were fine to begin with, but so I started my training in 2001 in February. And if you can go from day one to earning your green beret, without ever failing a test or without ever being injured, if you factor in the leave periods that, that you get, it's the best part of a year. And I was fortunate enough, I did it in one hit first time. Oh, wow. So I started in February and we were due to finish and get our green braids in October, four weeks after 9-11. And we watched it on the TV. You know, we're all excited because we've done all the physical stuff, all the field craft learn all the tactical stuff. And it was just like the marching and the admin rubbish that you do at the end to put the fancy parade on. So we're all excited. We're stuffing our faces in the diner with burgers in between these parade sessions. And then we see the Twin Towers on the TV. You know, I was only 18 years old. So I'm looking around at a bunch of, you know, anywhere between 18 and, and 28, probably year old men. And we're idiots. You know, we're excited and full of adrenaline. We think we're untouchable because of where we are in our life at that point and we we get excited we're like right but i think you know for your friends and family and loved ones they they're the opposite you know they're like now these and we were boys have to go and do this job that they've just spent ages trained to do and this is the real world this isn't call of duty you know you've got to go up there and there's a possibility that you won't come back you know and it's straight from the get-go you know with my career we were at the pointy end of the spear and it, it was you know go from day one when did you do your first deployment or when did you do the first deployment you can talk about so i was like i said we finished in october 2001 january 2002 i was trained to go to afghanistan on operation jacana but for some reason we, we scaled it down quite a lot. Like, just as we were about to go, they pulled loads of us out. And I think it became more of a, a special forces reconnaissance type thing. So they didn't need us. So I stayed in the UK. And then 2003, um, Iraq became the thing. So I went on Operation Telic 1 when I was 19 um, into Kuwait to start with. We, we sat there and waited for a few weeks. And then I was part of that initial invasion over the Kuwaiti-Iraqi border uh, into a place called as we buy a naval base 
And some of the other guys went to the palace, some went to the oil fields. We spent about three and a half months in and around Iraq. So that was that was my first taste of, of combat when I was 19. The young, form, uh, very formidable age, it's, it's definitely one that um, I know for SEALs and things like that over here, a lot of them, I mean, it's very rare that you get a SEAL that's that age because they have to, you guys go through certain training and a lot of people don't get to go through selection, or even attempt selection until after being in, or they're a certain fitness level. So very often you see them, you know, a little more into their twenties, but the eight 17, 18, 19 year old age, that's an age, especially that's the most, I would say it does a lot of damage because your brain is still developing and all of those things are still working. And you're, you're, as you're building the wires, you're, you're kind of setting your brain up for the permanent fight or flight, just being stuck in that mode. How many deployments did you end up doing throughout your career? Iraq. Of Iraq, yeah. So Iraq, just one. Okay. That, that was the only one I did. Okay. And did you, and you didn't have to do anything in Afghanistan? I did Afghanistan in 2007. Um, okay. Eventually. And... So I, I took, basically after, after Iraq, um, I met a woman, girl, and um, we had a child. So I had been through my Royal Marines training, deployed and had a baby on the way all within a space of like five years. And that's like our minimum time of service. So I thought, okay, I've, I've got the Green Beret. I've tasted combat. Now I need to switch fire because I've got a child on the way. I need to be at home, be responsible and try and build a family. And I was only 21 maybe. So I thought I'm young enough to start a new career. So I actually left the military after that first five years. Wow. Um, Things didn't work out. You know, we, we ended up separating. I spent a bit of time sofa surfing and working as a nightclub doorman to try and earn a bit of money. Went to South Africa and retrained as a bodyguard. Uh, spent six weeks out there learning, learning that trade. Came back home to try and get some close protection work. But for some reason, I just couldn't get my foot in the door. And it, it definitely wasn't for the lack of work because there was an abundance of it. I just think because of my age and the fact that I didn't know anybody to make that initial introduction I, I just couldn't do it and things weren't going well for me in my personal life you know I was literally spending my nights getting spat on by drunks and clawed and punched and kicked and it, it was just a bit of a nightmare so I got to this point when I'm like you know what I'm not gonna you know, five minutes ago I was this elite royal marine super fit, respected. Now I'm literally getting spat on by drunks and working for money out of an envelope every, every Friday night that I get given. So I made a decision that I was going to raise my standards and, and go back to, you know, what I was good at and, and what I knew and what I loved. And so I decided to rejoin and I, I re-enlisted early 2007, you know, with a, with a completely different attitude. You know, those first five years, I'm sure anybody will who served in the military can relate to this but it was just a wild party you know if you weren't deployed it was just lifting weights drinking beer and partying and i, I came back in when i re-enlisted with the mindset of right that's done we're going to get a career plan we're going to execute that career plan and, and we're going to just fly through the ranks like my uncle did and, and get up as high as we can in the next 20 years um so yeah um straight back in it was May 2007, I think I rejoined and went straight on pre-deployment training for 
for a Superman wow. tour of Afghanistan on Operation Herrick 7. Oh, okay. So they mm -hmm. kind of hit, they threw you back in. They're like, hey, he knows what he's doing. He couldn't have been off that long. <laughs> Just give him a gun again, yeah. right? Pretty much. Ooh, that's kind of ruthless. I mean, I want to ask you a few things about the way that you guys do with your transitions, because so many people listen to the show looking for, you know, trying to understand how to transition out or mental health things. It's really a, it plagues the community when people leave the military. Is it, is, is it that bad over in the UK as well when it comes to transitioning out? Yeah. And I hate to do this because I hate people that do this. I have an idea that I'm, I've been sitting on for years and the stars have aligned now with certain people in my life. And, and I know how to change that. Um, and I'm, I'm going to do that. Can you give me a little taste of what you're going to do? It's very simple, I think. And okay. it just involves coaching. Okay. So in, in the UK, so it might, it might be different now. These are old stats I was told a few years ago, but it takes on average, like I said, if you go from day one of Royal Marines training, straight through, no injuries, no failures, to get your green beret, an average of £100,000 to train that okay. one person. When you leave, you get 12 months, £3,000 to retrain. And in that 12 months, you can be on a ship in the middle of the ocean, with the Navy, you can be on exercise for three months, you can deploy, you know, you don't have that time you need to move cities, rehouse your family, get your wife a new job, put your kid in a new school, do the training you need for a new job, network for that new job, write your CV, get your healthcare in order. There's a million things you need to do, but you don't get to do it because you, you're jerked around doing all this stuff, which really isn't, shouldn't be your focus if you're in that last 12 months to to transition out and my belief is when you start looking at statistics with homeless veterans veterans with addiction problems marriage breakdowns all this kind of stuff i think if you manage that transition period better and people leave with a smoother transition all those problems they're not going to go away but the, the stats will drop I, I truly believe there'll be less veterans in prison less addicted to substances because they would have transitioned out. They would have been coached and managed to go into a new career. They will know that what their new purpose is, what that is going to fulfill them, and it, they'll be helped along the way. They don't just they don't just get thrown out into the civilian world with, you, you know, what it's like in the military. You do some stuff that civilians they shock it shocks them. Stuff that we think's funny, they're shocked by. Especially the face melt off. Especially in 2022. It's crazy now. If you do some of the stuff now in this day and age, people would just, they'd have a heart attack. But you spend all that time training people. And I'm not saying you can untrain them, but you don't spend any time training them to be civilians. As weird as that sounds, you, I know you'll understand what I'm saying, but you, you kind of need to recondition or decondition military people and prep them. Right. You know? No, you're 100% right. That's the, the biggest downfall of the military. It mm. is. The, the military ha holds plenty of things, a plethora of things that you could pick from that it helps people with. It helps people understand themselves. It gives them purpose. It gives them discipline. It gives them a job. It gives them a career. Like it, it, it's a unit. It's a community. It is something on its own. It's something really special and really unique. And I think it, it, 
it helps so many individuals, especially when they come from like, I had an individual on yesterday named Prime, where if he didn't have the military, he would have been in prison. It's just, that's the reality of things. And so many that it is that for so many in the United States, I know that they, you know, at certain point they'll say jail or the Marines, like they'll Mm. do that. That's an option. And it's because sometimes what happens is individuals just need structure. They need a way to pull themselves up. And the military is often that where the downfall happens is we send people 17, 18, 19, 20 year old kids to go over, fight rich men's wars, bring them back, put them back into society and go, nah, you'll have no problem talking about things that you did. And then you lose jobs. Then you lose stability with the family. Then people start drinking. Then they lose a sense of purpose. Now they're homeless. Now they can't get out. And it's just the cyclical cycle that we do with veterans. And we don't, we don't take the time. Like you said, we put so much effort into and finances into training especially people like Royal Marines, SBS, Navy SEALs and Rangers. I was just a pogue on a gun. So I didn't get as much as you. But what I can tell you is you spend a lot of time training us and a lot of money. The last thing you should want to do is release people too quick. The last thing you should want to do is get rid of people that if you just took time to properly retrain or sit down and say, hey, what happened to you is really shitty. It's normal how you're feeling. We're going to help you through this in hopes to keep you as a soldier. Um, And then we wouldn't see the homeless population be one in three be veterans. We wouldn't see one out of like every hundred people in society, you know, blowing their faces off. I mean, for God's sakes, when is enough enough? And when do the government step in and realize this is unacceptable behavior on our behalf, which it's going to take, excuse me, what I've said and noticed uh, in recent years is it takes veterans from within the community to fix the community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to talk about this a bit later, but you mentioned the jujitsu thing earlier. Yeah, yeah. So my thing is that the reason I think veterans form such close bonds and relationships that they can't replicate outside the military is because you all go through a shared hardship, right? You all start training on day one, you go through the same shit, then you finish and you go on the deployments and the operations together. And you bond during that process, right? And outside of the military, jujitsu is the closest thing that I found that replicates that because you'll start on day one getting your ass kicked by a 15 year old girl that's half your weight. <laughs> yeah. Trying to figure out how that happened. And you go through week by week, through belt by belt, until you get to like black belt. If you compete, you compete. And you're on a shared journey with people. And it's full of highs and lows like the military. Like one minute you're learning all these new techniques. Next minute, again, you're getting your head kicked in by someone half your weight, half your experience, and you can't figure out why. And that's why I think in that community, it, it feels so familiar to the, to the military community because you're sharing those hardships and that journey with people that are of a like mind, you know, and they share a passion and a purpose. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I was a fighter before the military in Taekwondo, and it was the same thing I did in my entire life. It was my existence. I eat, sleep, breathe, kicking people in the face. Like mm-hmm. there was something so satisfying about being in that environment because it was a community outside of school or a community outside of bullying or these things that people go through. And it can give you a level of discipline and understanding of yourself that frankly, unless you go through hardships, unless you have those things happen to you, or you do heavy doses of psychedelics, you're not going to figure out. Mm -hmm. And I think they all have their place, but jujitsu for sure. You're, you're, you see a, um, 
we're seeing a, a big spike in the community with jujitsu and the martial arts and, and really community-based things, other things, um, including hunting and fishing and the other groups that really are meant for mental health, but really end up building this really special bond within one another that is unlike anything I've ever seen. And so I'm grateful to see individuals taking jujitsu on in hopes that it will help transition them out. But there's, there's a lot of work to do. And when you are ready to sit down and have a very in-depth conversation about exactly what you're going to do to help with transitions, please tell mm -hmm. us because okay. we're, our listeners are 86% men. Okay. So you got to tell us because these guys, I love you all. You're all wonderful, but your egos are out of control. <laughs> and sometimes it's okay to ask for help. I mean, all the time it's okay to ask for help and it's always okay to ask for tools and ways to help get you out of the military if you're ready for that. And so please come and do that. Um, I'm excited and I'm really glad to see somebody who's serious tackling an issue like this because it is, it is the reason we have such a, I believe that coupled with TBIs and uh, over over prescribed medication for veterans, like we there's a there's a gamut there that just is really really troubling um, when people transition out. But for you, you um, you've also competed in Invictus Games. You've done plenty of other things. But before all of that, you kind of had a situation happen. I did. I did. Just, I mean, it's a small one. It's not. It's not anything impactful or anything. No, I just went out for a stroll on Christmas Eve back in 2007. When I left, I was six foot two and weighed 16 stone. And when I came back, I was four foot tall and weighed nine stone. <laughs> That's pretty much how that day not went. Not funny, but I'm not. So no. No, I was, I was halfway through that deployment uh, of okay. Afghanistan, working out of a place called Ford Operating Base Robinson in, okay. in Helmand Province with, with some American Special Forces guys. And on Christmas Eve, we were tasked with going out on a, another routine foot patrol. We, we had kind of been confined to the FOB for a couple of days due to lack of manpower. So when a helo came in, we got a few more bodies. They immediately mounted the patrol because they knew we were getting a bit restless. And the idea, it was so simple. that there wasn't, It wasn't one of these that we'd done before, you know, enemy location, go disturb it, weapons cache, go destroy it. It was get in two sections with eight men at the rear entrance of camp, go out, one go north, one go south, walk around the perimeter, meet at the front entrance of camp. That's it. And then enjoy Christmas. So basic, so simple, no real objective. And um, we had not had any, any intelligence to say that we had any reason to be worried. No, nothing had been fed back to us. You know, as far as we knew, we were still ahead of the enemy and, and taking the fight to them. So, we formed up by the rear entrance account. They opened the gate and we left. And I was second in command of the group that went north. The other guys went south. And we went out and patrolled. And we did all the things we'd done before. You know, we met with the villagers. We conversed with them, gave them some food and water and some, some treats for the kids. We reported back any suspicious signs of activity, all, all the usual stuff. And about six hours later, we then found ourselves at the opposite side of camp, ready to finish up for the day and go back in now at the front entrance. Now the section that I was in, were on a high piece of ground, uh, what we called the North Four. It was one of our target indicators if we ever got attacked uh, by the enemy in the FOB. Beneath that, if you look down, you could see a bird's eye view kind of of, of FOB Robinson, 
And then down beneath that was the other group of eight men that we left with earlier in the day. So we were tasked with giving them overwatch to protect them while they went back into the camp, got behind the perimeter wall, and then returned the favor. Standard, basic infantry stuff. So we're up on this high feature, this ridge line, and the section commander, Corporal Sean Halesby, uh, took half of the section and started giving them fire positions. I took my half of the section, and because, you know, normally you get behind like a building, a wall or a tree or whatever for some cover, we didn't have any of that because of the terrain that we're operating in. And I saw this shallow bow in the ground in front of us. So I thought if we jump in there, get on our stomachs, because we're high up, no one's going to be able to see us and it's going to be hard to engage. So I jumped in. The rest of the section started taking up their fire positions. I had selected my fire position, you know, as, as second in command, I was kind of halfway between the two sections. And when they were happy and I was happy and they gave me the thumbs up, I started walking over towards a position that I selected for myself. And then as I went to get down to my stomach, I put my right knee on the ground. And that was the moment I knelt on and detonated an improvised explosive device. You weren't even standing up. You hit it with your knee. You were already low. Yeah. Dude, you're lucky you're sitting here right now. Well, you know what? I, I don't, when I say I think about this, I don't like obsess about it, but I've, I've pondered it before. Yeah. You know, we're in this boat. So, so what it was, you're, like I said, we work with American SF guys. They went in after and they cleared the area and they had to write a report on the minefield. Right. And there were six of these devices that were scattered around. And it was an anti-personnel mine with the warhead of a 107 millimeter Chinese rocket on top. And the only thing I can think, because like you said, if you stood on it, if that thing explodes, you're just going to turn into a pink cloud. Right. Because we were in this bowl and I was at an angle getting on my knee, I imagine it came out at an angle and it took oh. off both my legs above the knee and then my right arm. So as I put my right arm on the floor, I've, I've slung my weapon, put my arm down on the floor, put my left knee down. As I put my right knee down, I imagine it's exploded at like a 45 degree angle rather than straight up. Got it. Which is why I'm here. Because if it was straight up, I absolutely would not be here. No, there's no chance. No. No chance. No. Wow. And I remember the whole thing. Oh, no, old... that's even worse. Oh, I'm so, I, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing to have amnesia or not of that. I'll be honest. I, I think knowing and remembering it, it is good. Because I'm very fortunate in that you know, what was it now? 2000, that was Christmas Eve 2007. So what we looked 13, 14 odd years ago. Isn't that crazy, by the way? Yeah. But mentally, you know, a lot of guys suffer with, with post-traumatic stress and, and these kind of um, illnesses. I, I've never had that. And I put that down to remembering it. A lot of the guys that were injured after me were knocked unconscious by the blast. And then they would get flashbacks later on in their life. They don't remember. Right. I remember everything. I had to... I remember, you know, this little bow that we were in after reading that report was 12 feet deep by 16 feet around. I had to get evacuated out of there by a medic, put my own foot on my stomach because it was still attached. I got put in a vehicle and, and on the way back in, I fell out the back and the driver grabbed my femur bone and held me in the vehicle. <laughs> mm. right. Got me to the HLS and the Chinook landed and that's all I remember. But then they threw us in the back of the Chinook and they said, I had no signs of life. So they said, right, this guy's dead, leave him. 
because there was another guy that was injured with shrapnel in his back and his tricep. So they got to work on him. As the medic walked past me to get some equipment to go work on the other guy, they said my eye flowed, which meant my heart was beating. So they, he alerted some of the other medics on the helicopter and they came and started working on me. And bizarrely, three days before this incident, whoever caused the shots in the, the army medical world had said, you know, we've got this new technique to get fluids into people. I'm giving it the green light and we can use this now. And basically, if you can't get intravenous lines into somebody's veins because they've collapsed because of blood loss, you drill into their fibula and their tibia, which is great, right? And that worked. But I didn't have a tibia or a fibula because they'd been ripped off by the landmine. So the two of the medics, Charlie and Millsy, having no idea what to do, you know, and then they're in the back of a chin-up, right? And it's going left and it's right, and there's sand and dust everywhere, and they've got another guy dying over here, and they're, they're like freaking out trying to figure out what to do they just drilled into my hip uh one in the front oh. one in the back. they put an intravenous line in it took two attempts uh the first one didn't bite by the second one they got the fluids in they said three minutes later i was awake and responsive and complaining that my ass was hurting um which made them cry because that was a good sign because an effect of mass amounts of morphine apparently so they started crying with relief like you know this guy's going to live and then they got me back to Camp Bastion to the field hospital. And then the surgeons, you know, chopped me up to where all the flesh was healthy. So both legs went above the knee, right arm above the elbow. And then they sent me home. I got back in the UK about four o'clock in the morning on Christmas Day. That's how cool. Oh, yeah. You guys are right there. Yeah, you mm-hmm. guys, that's fast. Holy shit. Yeah. It's interesting that they thought to go to the hip. I would have, I don't know what I would have. When I think about that, because that was a technique that we that, like you said, that was something that we were taught um, in 2008. So that's that's really interesting. That's really fascinating that they got it into the hip. Oh, man, that's not a pleasant one, though, to do to people. I mean, compared to what you went through. I don't remember it. So like I remember the blast. I don't remember the pain. It's fine. Yeah. It's not a a big deal. The last thing I remember is, is that helicopter landing. And then I woke up on the 28th of December for about 20 seconds in intensive care. Jesus Christ, my dude. Mm. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you guys, the Brits got rocked in Helmand. Yep. For a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Helmand, uh, Helmand province is a, is a very different place than uh, yeah. many other parts of Afghanistan. Yeah, it's, it's a funny place, you know, like, when you stand in those sentry boxes in the fobs, you know, and if you are on that particular portion of the, of the day when the sun is rising, you look out, it's beautiful. Like mountains, snow top covered mountains, glistening lakes, heat. It's a beautiful country. It's just, you know, a crazy one. It's, yeah, I mean, that's definitely a word for it. It's, it, it is beautiful. There are plenty of gorgeous places there. I mean, my God, even just the fob that we were at, we were an American fob and it was, we didn't get to hang out at Massengard or any of those for the Canadians, but we knew where the Brits were in Helmand. And when we did go with them, we understood what that was like. And we would hear stories uh, continuously about you guys getting rocked left, right, and center. Um, so I always wondered, you know, I never set foot in Helmand. I did the other provinces, but um 
I'm glad you you were down on your knee and said, I must, I must say that's a, I don't know if luck's even the right word. I think that was, you know, you're meant to be, you're meant for more, right? You're meant for more clearly, or you wouldn't be here. Yeah. I mean, I think the older I get, the, you know, when I was 24 and I got injured and when you're young, you're like, oh, that's bullshit. You know, I'm not meant <laughs> to be, there's nothing, there's nothing bigger than me and all this, you know, but now as you get older and you look back and all these things happen in your life and you kind of reflect and piece them together, you know, you do have to kind of think, you know, maybe everything does happen for a reason. You know, maybe I lost three limbs above all my major joints rather than just my foot for a reason. Maybe because I was strong enough to get through it. I had a great support system around me, whatever it is, but it all led me to here. And it's been a wild ride. It's been a wild ride. I, and I, I never ask this cause I, I always know the answer, but I don't think you would, would go back and change it. I mean, the stuff that you're doing now is impressive. I mean, it, it led you to where you are and that's as, as tragic as you know, your, your accident was, or your explosive was, or whatever you want to call it that, I don't know what even to call when somebody steps on IEDs and they blow like that. Um, incident. An incident. Ah, yeah. that's yeah. a nice way to put it. Definitely wasn't it. an accident. Someone no, that was to fucking purposeful. <laughs> that was very intense, purposeful. You know, there's a videotape somewhere in Afghanistan on a shitty ass VHS player mm-hmm. of them watching that because they watched everything and they waited for everything and they, they use it. Oh, it angers me. Anyway. So well, if you want to be, if you want me to kind of calm your anger, yes. I know that within 24 hours, the three gentlemen that planted the ID no longer existed. Oh, I feel so, so much better. And I love that you yeah. call them gentlemen. So I win. <laughs> I, I win. This oh, is perfect. Yeah. Oh, I love that. There was a I, I was at an event um, in Texas for Defenders of Freedom, and one of the uh, generals was up there, and he described it brilliantly. He goes, in any given night, we would go out and prosecute X amount of individuals, and mm-hmm. that was like the way you say it when you're fundraising, and I was dying laughing. I said, you prosecute, do you? Do you? <laughs> yeah. So I'm so glad they were prosecuted correctly. Good. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I feel a little bit better about it. Um, but you're doing a ton of things now and you've got kind of, you're a really hopeful, helpful individual. You really put your, your, you know, your time into other individuals who are struggling and really giving them a path forward. And I'd love for you to talk about how you got into jujitsu, what you're doing. You were in Invictus. I mean, you're kind of an example. So I would love for you to kind of talk about what that was like coming out of that and into this new world that you're learning to navigate. So the whole Invictus thing, that was, I'm sure people listening to this will be able to relate to this because it can't just be me. But when I became disabled, like every time I met a stranger, like the first thing they'd say is, so when are you doing the Paralympics? And I'm like, is that like a prerequisite of being disabled? You have to be a Paralympic athlete. Because like you, I was a martial artist. I used to fight as an amateur kickboxer, Muay Thai and boxing. And, you know, I'd never done any track or field events. None of that stuff ever interested me. So the Paralympics was not on my radar ever. And in 2016, I was sat right where I am now in my office at home. And I was planning out the following year, setting myself goals. And I got halfway through and I I realized that Christmas Eve 2017 
was my 10 year, what we call bang anniversary. So I thought oh. I'm going to do something. Oh, different. that's new. Bang anniversary or ampiversary, whatever you want to call it. Okay. So I said, okay, let me do something to celebrate 10 years of life that I haven't done. And sport was the one thing I hadn't done. And the Invictus Games was, I think, two years old. And I'd seen my friends go and compete and win medals. And all that stuff was cool. But I knew a lot of people outside of the Invictus Games when the cameras were off and, and you know, none of the glitz and glam was there. And I saw how their confidence had skyrocketed and how they'd taken their lives to the next level. So I thought, OK, I'll do that. And I applied for the Invictus Games. And uh, I never thought I'd get in because I wasn't in any of the cliques with the, in the sporting world. I'd not done anything and no one knew me. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And if I don't make it, fine, I'll figure something else out. But I managed to make the team uh, the first year, um, back in, I think it was 2017, when we came to Canada, to Toronto. And my entire attitude was, I'm just going to go in with brute force and ignorance because I'm fitter than everybody. And I'm just going to smash everybody. <laughs> And everyone kept saying in all the training camps, everyone kept saying all the time, it's not about the medals. Everyone's got their own individual definition of success. And in my mind, I'm like, it fucking is about the medals and I'm getting gold ones, right? And I don't care if anyone doesn't agree with that. That's my goal. And I went there the first year and it, it didn't work out. I won't go into the reasons why, but classifications in para sports are just crazy. And I ended up with two silvers and two bronzes. And, and I couldn't let it lie because I hadn't got any goals. And so I came home and in the next room in my, in my garage, I've got a, I had a friend, you can't see it, but I made a frame up and it's got a big Invictus flag in the middle and it's got three holes, one side and three the other. So we put the silvers and the bronzes, but left the gold ones empty. And so every day at five o'clock when I was in the garage on my hand bike on my rowing machine, I was just staring at empty spots of where the gold medal should be. And I just destroyed myself for like the best part of 10 months went to Australia the following year and then did what I set out to do. I think I ended up with four gold, three more bronze and another silver. And that was it for me then. I had achieved what I wanted, kind of dropped the mic, leave and, and not do it again. But I got on board with the, the kind of mentor program of helping other people. Because the, the not the bad thing, but the sad thing about it is like 600, 700 people apply. And they only have like 68 spots. So I thought, well, I've done two years. It's selfish to try to compete a third year, but I'll see if I can help other people that are starting their journey um, based on my failures and successes. You know, what I learned along those two years in that journey, try and, try and help these people, again, outside of sport, take their lives to a better level and a, and a, and a better place. I love so, that. Yeah. No participation medals here. We don't do that. No. Anybody bad. who says it's not about the medals can sit and spit. <laughs> Come on. I, I do get it because what I learned later on was, so I would, I found out like years later that some of the people that then became my friends when they first went slept in their cars Jesus. because they were suffering so bad. They couldn't go into a group environment or a military people or anyone. And then I started to understand what they were saying. So their success was sleeping in the hotel and socializing with people and being in a crowded room with people cheering. Right. That was success to them. I, I didn't understand that at the time because of my, you know, I'm a Royal Marine. I'm just about being fit, destroying targets and goals and just winning stuff. I didn't understand. I was ignorant to, to the rest of the world. 
but now I understand it. But um, it hasn't changed me. I'm still all about getting medals and winning. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's just who I am. But Well, you're competitive. Yeah. That's okay. Listen, I was released for PTS. Like I understand. So I understand the side that you're talking about, about mm-hmm. being in the room and, and being able to be around large, uh, large crowds and that kind of noise. So I get that there's a success in that. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day as an athlete, no. Gotcha. No, yeah. we win. We win or we nothing. Right. Yeah. So that's that's great. I'm glad to hear that you were able to achieve what you wanted to with that, though, and just get out there. And, and it goes towards the work you put into it, though, right? That takes mm-hmm. effort. It takes time. It takes mindset. And the fact that you were able to flip your mindset and really drive home towards something like that is is incredible for others to see that it is possible. Where did you go from Invictus? So, I mean, during during that whole process I, I had a full-time job as well I was working with I transitioned out of the military in 2010 I was working with the Royal Marines charity so that was occupying my time and then about five years ago now I so it was probably just about the time Invictus was finished actually for me I was in the the sergeant's mess at Royal Marines headquarters and a serving physical training instructor approached me and asked me if I'd like to try Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Now, I told you about my background when I was growing up. And prior to this, I had a taekwondo guy and a karate guy offer to train me and tell me they could get me to black belt level. And I knew because of my experience that that wasn't possible based on hard work. It would have been on pity because I don't have legs. I can't kick, you know, all the, the, the catters and stuff you can't really do. So I knew that if I'd earned it, uh, like a black belt in those disciplines, I wouldn't have felt like I'd earned it. But when Sam approached me about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, my initial thought was, oh, here we go again. Another guy, you know, pitying me, thinking that I need sympathy. But because he was a Royal Marine, because he was a physical training instructor, he was also the head of Royal Marines unarmed combat and a purple belt at the time in Jiu-Jitsu, I thought I'll give it a go. Now, when I was growing up, I had trained in Japanese Jiu-Jitsu, but didn't know what Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was. So Japanese okay. is a lot of judo throws and, and wrist locks and standing stuff. So I thought that's what I was going to do. And when I got there, he's like, no, this is like a ground-based grappling system. So I thought, well, perfect. I'm already sat on my ass. So I'm on the ground. I'm halfway there. Now just teach me what I need to know. And right. he showed me some chokes and some arm bars and then figured out how I could adapt it using my amputated limbs. And at the end of that first hour, I, I was trashed, right? Oh, like yeah. beating up, sweating, like proper. I've been fighting for my life. And I, I thought that, that I would never experience that again, that adrenaline rush and that, that kind of manly thing to fight another man and, and try and beat another man. And he gave that back to me. And I was like, and this is, I don't mean this in like a macho egotistical way. It's just, I enjoyed the feeling of it. You know what I mean? Of, of knowing I can look after myself and, and go toe to toe with someone. And then I just got hooked. And then the more I did it, the more I found out that it was an adaptable sport and that this wouldn't be based on sympathy. This would be based on hard work and effort and getting my ass kicked continuously until I understood it and progressed based on effort and discipline. Um, and that, you know, I just, I was just in love with it from then on and just doing it at every opportunity. Yeah, I know you do it a lot. Mm, you do I it do. a ton, but you do a lot of charitable work and you, and you, you lend your time to a lot of different individuals. Um, which is something on its own that, you know, you don't have to be doing, but you do because you see the value in, in helping others, which is 
obviously what we need in this community. Right. How did you go from how did you go from starting and then literally working with organizations and getting other individuals to see potential with that? So I'm quite I, I use social media every day, right? Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, whatever it is. And I got I get contacted all the time by veterans, veterans' families, and I have done for well over 10 years. And it is very hard to constantly, and I, and I pride myself on this, that I'm always trying to get back to everyone as much as possible. And it, it's literally dominated my life for 10 years, like sitting up past midnight, trying to help people get back to them, feeling that I can't just ignore somebody that, that needs some help because I've been in that situation where I've needed help myself. But doing these things, like these charity events on bigger platforms, so with the mainstream media, with other military organizations, other military charities, they can shine a light on it to a bigger platform so more people can see it and then more people can get help and support. Because a lot of people don't even know what's available, you know, especially from previous generations, you know, maybe the Falklands generation, Kosovo, Bosnia, that those kind of generations. They don't even know. They're, they're suffering right now. And they don't know that this organization exists to help them. They pick up the phone and say, you know, this is my deal. Can you help me? And get the help they need. They just sit in isolation and struggle. So I thought the more you can get out there, get this message out there on all these different platforms to all these different demographics, the more people can get help. And so I just kind of threw myself into that. And on a selfish note, you know, I'll enjoy the physical challenges of the running, the bike riding, the swimming, seeing if I can do it, you know, with my situation. So it was kind of like a, it's a win-win. I get to challenge myself and see if I can do it. And I get to hopefully get a message out to help people that need to help themselves. That makes sense. And it's good. I mean, social media is definitely um, the devil and, 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 and also a tool. If you use it properly, it can be, uh, it can be, it can save a lot of lives. It really can, um, again, used properly, um, which is fantastic. What's next for you? What do you see coming for you in the next, you know, couple of years? What's the plan other than helping others transition out? Um, so that, that's going to be a big thing for me is, is work on that project and bringing that to life. And it's going to be a hard battle because the, the issue I see straight away is if you create something that helps people transition out of the military, the military are going to turn around and go, we don't want people transitioning out of the military. We don't like what you're doing. And I know mm -hmm. that and I'm prepared for that. But that's going to be a, a big part of my life. I'm also making a movie. Um, so I wrote this when I was in rehab, uh, a book okay. I wrote back in 2009. I turned that into a, a film now, which hopefully is going to get cinematic release when it's done. So I've got to work a lot on that. And then I'm just going to carry on the jujitsu. I've got some goals. I'm, I'm looking to compete now. Um, it's going to be difficult because, you know, I'm a triple amputee and there aren't many in the world. There are even less that train jujitsu, even less that want to compete, and even less that are 60 kilogram blue belts. So it's going to be difficult. <laughs> I'm going to have to fight able-bodied people that are heavier and better than me, but we'll see what we can do. I, I have a feeling um, when you're in the middle of choking another able-bodied human out, <laughs> They're going to learn really quickly what you're able to do. So I'm not, not concerned on that front with you. It feels like a uh, great determination. And just, 
you'll be fine. I don't see that foreseeing a, an issue in that for you. Um, something that you mentioned there that I just want to touch on when you were in rehab, you've been through some struggles kind of going through this transition period since your blast anniversary, if you will. Um, I don't, dude, your bang of I've never <laughs> heard that term before and it's blowing yeah. my mind literally right now. Yeah. yeah puns. Um, what do you do for your mental health that really helps kind of keep you on an even keel? Cause I know you're a father, I know you're a husband and that, that all comes with its own stresses outside of, you know, just normal daily life. So what are the, some things that you do that others might be able to learn from? So, I mean, this is a very individual thing. I think when it comes to looking after your mental health, but for me, what I've done, and this has been difficult, but I think, again, this has come with age, but we, with my background of, you know, on paper being this rough, tough, you know, raw marine, to tell everyone that I meditate every morning was difficult to do. Um, but I do, I, get, I, I have a routine. So I get up at 5.15 every day, straight into some sort of meditation and, and breath work. I've, I've started looking into breath work this year, and that's been phenomenal for me. Mm-hmm. Exercise, you know, gym work, jujitsu just having that blast out and releasing all that stress is, is phenomenal. You know, the hope that someone said it to me once with jujitsu and, and I always tell everyone else because it's funny, but it's true that it doesn't matter what's going on in your life, whether you're suffering, maybe PTSD, you've got bills piling up, you, you feel you're failing at your job or as a father or anything. If someone's choking you out, you have to be present. None of that stuff matters because you're just trying to survive being choked out. And that's one of the powerful things about jiu-jitsu and it kind of is similar with exercise as well but you need to have that blast and you have to get around good people i tell everybody this all the time and and i've been around assholes a lot in my life that drain me that have used me and abused me they took what they want they false promises here that, and you know i'm 38 years old now and i am ruthless with who i spend my time with my, my little what i call my inner circle they're all people that share the same values that I do, the mindset that I do. They, they want to push themselves to be the best they can, help other people succeed in business and in their personal life. I haven't got time for time wasters that are moaning and, and complaining and talking shit about other people. You know, I call them morale vampires because they just suck the morale out of you. I, I'm just ruthless. So you, you've got to, you know, get a routine, exercise and be healthy and get around good people. You are the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. That's how exactly. it works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love it. So where can everyone find you, help support any of the organizations you work with? Start jujitsu. What's a good starting point there? Where can they find you on social? So all of my handles are the same. It's just at Mark Ormrod. Um, I'm on, I think I'm on all, all, all of the platforms. <laughs> I think um, I'm on all. I'm at, there's always a new one, isn't there? But um, I'm on there daily. So I'm always, and like I say, you know, I'm always in the, in the, my DMs trying to answer as many as I can, as quick as I can. Um, so just find me on social media. Okay. All right. Well, I'm, uh, I'm grateful for your time and I'm grateful for all the things that you've been able to teach and the example you show as an individual, um, is exquisite. So keep doing what you're doing. And I know that you're only going to continue to help others. And we'll be sure to put every link um, to all your organizations and all of that in the bio and people can go give you some support, follow you guys up and then see how we can help you. Otherwise you stick with me. I'll see everyone else next week.